0: I want to turn you to a number of scriptures this evening. First of all, in the Old Testament, I want to turn you to the very well-known two passages in Psalm 46. Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore will we not fear Though the earth do change and though the mountains be shaken into the heart of the seas, though the waters thereof roar and be troubled, though the mountains tremble with the swelling thereof, there is a river, the streams whereof make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacles of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her at the dawn of the morning. The nations raged, the kingdoms were moved, he uttered his voice, the earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob is our refuge. Come. Behold the works of the Lord, what desolations He hath made in the earth. He maketh wars to cease unto the end of the earth. He breaketh the bow and cutteth the spear in sunder. He burneth the chariots in the fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us the God of Jacob is our refuge and then the 27th Psalm from verse 1 Psalm 27 the Lord is my light and my salvation whom shall I fear the Lord is the strength or stronghold of my life of whom shall I be afraid When evildoers came upon me to eat up my flesh, even mine adversaries and my foes, they stumbled and fell. Though a host should encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war should rise against me, even then will I be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For in the day of trouble he will keep me secretly in his pavilion and in the covert of his tabernacle will he hide me. He will lift me up upon a rock and now shall my head be lifted up above mine enemies round about me and I will offer in his tabernacle sacrifices of joy or or joy shouts is the actual word in Hebrew I will sing, yea I will sing praises unto the Lord then in your New Testament Ephesians, the letter of the Apostle Paul to the Ephesians chapter 6 verse 10, another well known passage finally Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For our wrestling is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against the powers, against the world rulers of this darkness, against the hosts of wicked spirits in the heavenless. Wherefore, take up the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, with all taking up the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, with all prayer and supplication, praying at all seasons in the Spirit, and watching thereunto in all perseverance and supplication for all the saints, and on my behalf that utterance may be given unto me in opening my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. And then 2 Corinthians chapter 10 from verse 2 Well, we'll, we will read from verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but mighty before God or through God or in the presence of God to the casting down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that is exalted against the knowledge of God. And bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Then yet another in uh, um, Timothy, in the letter of Timothy. Second letter of Paul to Timothy, chapter 2, verse 3. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier. Of Christ Jesus. No soldier on service entangleth himself in the affairs of this life that he may please him who enrolled him as a soldier. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12. Fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on the life eternal whereunto thou wast called. Lastly, a very strange little prophecy in the prophecy of Isaiah. Isaiah in chapter 21 from verse 11. The burden of Duma. One calleth unto me out of Seir, watchman, what hour of the night, watchman, what hour of the night? The watchman said, the morning comes, and also the night. If ye will inquire, inquire ye, turn ye, come. Shall we just have a further word of prayer? Lord, when we turn to your word, we are so conscious, dear Lord, that we can use our own talents and energies and ideas, and we can present truths and doctrines, and we can make up our own kind of sermon or message. But Lord, it's all to no avail. We need you, Lord, and we believe that we have not met here this evening by accident. You have planned it, and this is an appointment, Lord, of yours. Therefore, Lord, we believe you have made specific provision for our time, and we don't want to miss it, Lord. We want to take that provision which you have provided for this particular evening, in fact, these few times we have together. We want by faith to stand into that anointing grace and wisdom and power, that you have made available to us through the finished work of our Lord Jesus. Manifest it by your Spirit, Lord. And grant, Lord, that both in the speaking and in our hearing it may be a divine ability to speak your word and to hear your word. And we shall give you all the praise and all the glory in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. I want to speak to you in these few times about the call to spiritual warfare the call to spiritual warfare I don't want the the times to be unnecessarily heavy because we're going to talk about warfare there is no need for them to be heavy The fact of the matter is, every child of God, whether he knows it or does not know it, is in a battle. And it's just as well that you and I wake up in time and realize that there's no way you can be in a battle without God's provision and without some understanding of why there is a battle and what the goal of God is in that battle. Some people think that if they ignore this subject, it belongs sort of to those who are rather heavy and um, have to talk about the, what they will feel of the more negative things um, in the Christian life and in church life, that um, uh, somehow or other if we ignore this subject we shall be able to live in some kind of paradise. Well, the only paradise that I have ever known down here is a fool's paradise. And there are Christians who can deceive themselves and can live in such a kind of paradise. But they are always casualties. You will never find a child of God who has refused to become a good soldier of the Lord Jesus, who is anything but a casualty. When people have remained spiritual babes, 20 years after their conversion, 30 years after their conversion, they are casualties. It is abnormal. It is not the normal Christian life, and it is not normal Christian church life. It means that somewhere along the line something terrible, abnormal has taken place and we have actually without our even knowing it, knowing it we have become a casualty. We have to wake up to the very simple fact that you cannot be delivered from the powers of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of God's dear son, without being in a battle. If we think the enemy is just going to surrender us easily, without a fight, without any strategies for undoing us, or trying to trip us up, we have another thing coming. Now one of the greatest sadnesses is is that by and large in Christianity, the larger number of Christians are casualties in this war. And it is for this very reason that I am talking or sharing with you a little about this matter. Now, I am also fully aware that many of the battles we Christians are in are battles of our own making. Our church scene is filled with divisions and factions and collisions and incompatibilities. Awkward and difficult people who cause battles um, that we are quite unnecessary. And then again, because we do not always really experience the Lord as we ought to, we are not prepared for the cost of discipleship. We are not prepared for the work of the Holy Spirit. Often jealousies and rivalries and ambitions and a thousand and one other things that belong to this world lie just beneath the surface of church life. And um, the enemy has only to play on those things and they burst out to the surface and everybody thinks we're in a battle. Um, which is the Lord's battle, and I'm sorry to say that very often it's our own battle. We are found colliding with one another and hammering one another and slicing one another down and running one another through, and I don't know what else we do in church life. I don't have to tell you. There must be a thousand examples of it at hand. We... uh, We... um, We are amazing at fighting the bad fight with one another. And um, it is no good trying to spiritualize that kind of thing and saying that is the Lord. The fact that stones have to be shaped, that we have to be beaten into shape, and that the Lord uses one another, that is perfectly true. But very much of this is not really the Lord's battle. Um, This is a battle that we have ourselves produced. But having said that, there is a battle that the whole of our world history is bounded by. In other words, if we take this book and we turn to Genesis, We find this battle almost in the first chapters and we go right to the end of the Bible, to the book of Revelation, and we find the same battle in the last chapters. It is almost as if the whole of world history, the history of the nations, the history of God's covenant people, the history of the the work of the Lord is, as it were, the history of a battle, an enormous battle between God and Satan, between Christ and the powers of darkness between uh, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. And um, it doesn't matter, as I say, where you turn. For instance, I have read a little psalm, which is prophetic in its content. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble therefore will we not fear though the earth do change and so on and so forth and as we read on we find that this poor psalmist in his experience because he knows the Lord because he's been saved by the Lord because he's one of God's covenant people he finds himself in an enormous turmoil an upheaval not of his own making but something into which he's been introduced as it were by being covenanted to the Lord Uh, now this is absolutely true (laughs) because we read there is a river the streams whereof make glad the city of God the holy place of the Lord The holy place of the tabernacles of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. So all this warfare, all this antagonism has as its objective the destruction of the city of God. The moving of the city of God. The forcing of the city of God out of God, of its God-given position and status into something else. And then we begin the nations raging. people doing this and that and all the rest of it and then we have this marvelous refrain the Lord of hosts is with us the God of Jacob is our refuge now of course I don't have to say anything to you about the phrase the God of Jacob I imagine most of you know this is a, a, a title of the God of all grace It is just an expression of God's enormous grace that can take a man like Jacob and turn him from a sinner into a saint and never forsake him, never leave him until in the end he sees the Lord and uh, becomes a prince with God. But the Lord of hosts, I fear, is not understood in Christian circles. Because everyone just thinks this is a title for the Lord. But the word in Hebrew is the Lord of armies. It is is the very word that's used today for armies the Lord of armies. Not meaning armies down here, but meaning His spiritual armies. And immediately we're face to face with the fact that this God of all grace is the commander of the armies of heaven. He has a war on. And He intends to win that war. And that's why we must know Him as the God of all grace. Or we shall never come through in that war that you and I are found in. And then it goes on in the most wonderful way. Further on, it says, Come, come, see, behold the works of the Lord. He just causes devastation over the whole earth. It's a, it's a military thing. Of course, some Christians think, Oh, dear, 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 this is Old Testament. Oh no, this isn't love. I mean, this isn't turning me out the other cheek. I always say to people who bring up this, What about the book of Revelation? where we finally see the Lord riding out on a white horse, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, with that name, Word of God, crowned with many crowns, and the blood is up to the halter of the horse's, So much for this namby-pamby, anemic, spineless kind of Christianity that's all around us. You know whether we don't. We you know we've got to be sweet, and it's not sick, It's sentimentality. It's not reality. The fact is, we're in a battle, and we're to be good soldiers of Jesus Christ. You can't be spineless, anemic, uh, uh, filled with sweet, sugary sentimentality, and a good soldier of Jesus Christ. not that we shouldn't be filled with love we need to be filled with love if we're going to get through this battle we need the love of God but the fact of the matter is that love of God is the love of God which enables us to suffer hardship and which enables us to endure discipline and which enables us to stay together with one another in this uh, battle and to Encourage one another and support one another until finally the Lord wins the battle. Now, I say this is an amazing thing because it speaks about this devastation. He says. You go on till he makes wars to cease. How does he make wars to cease? By removing the enemy, devastating the enemy. Look what he says. He breaks the bow, cutteth the spear in sunder. He burneth the chariots in fire. What marvelous terms these are! When you these are all military terms. Be still, the Lord says, and know that I am God. I will be exalted in. Among the nations, I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of the armies is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. We had the same thing in Psalm 27. Here again, the psalmist, this time David, is, is speaking. And he says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? We might well ask, what is he fearing? What, what is this man afraid of? This great warrior, this young fellow with such courage, this one who took the lamb out of the lion's mouth and out of the bear's mouth because it was his responsibility to keep his father's flock. Why is he afraid? What is it that has sort of made him blanch, as it were? What has he seen? Here we go on, the Lord is the stronghold of my life. Stop there for a moment. Why? Why do we get these words like the Lord is my fortress, the Lord is my stronghold, the Lord uh, is my high tower? These are all terms to do with war, with battle. Why are we finding them again and again and again in the Psalms and in the Prophets? When evildoers came upon me to eat up my flesh, cannibalism. Even mine adversaries, not just decent soldiers coming up, but those who want to eat us. They want to make a meal of us. Anyone who thinks that these powers we are facing are just sweet, decent soldiers on the other side of the line, you you might as well know this, they have sharpened their teeth to a point. They mean to have have you and me for a meal. Even mine adversaries and my foes, they stumbled and fell. Though a host, the same word again, though an army should encamp against me, my heart shall not fear, though war should rise up against me, even then will I be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord. Now we're at the heart of the battle. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Here we've got this. Here we are at the root of it. There is a river, the streams whereof make glad the city of God. Spiritually. It is belonging to the Lord, being as it were the body of the Messiah, being living stones built together. Here we've got to the heart of the whole matter, of the conflict. This is why the whole powers of darkness are in an uproar. This is why they are preparing to make us a meal. This is why they are encamping against us with strategies and devices to undo us. This is why war has been declared upon us as the people of God the enemy will not allow the house of the Lord to be built he will not allow living stones to be built together into a a, a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ this is the heart of the whole conflict here we are as it were, at the focal point of world history. This that is on the very heart of God. There is a a river, the streams whereof make glad the city of God. City of God, house of the Lord. It is really almost in one sense the same thing. It has got a a somewhat different uh, uh, meanings when we really do, but it's the hu- it's the point is we're dealing with God's eternal purpose. And here we find God cannot save you, deliver you from those powers of darkness, transfer you into the kingdom of his dear son, and there be no antagonism from the, from the spiritual forces around us, no war declared upon us, or those with, with whom uh, we are in fellowship. It is impossible. Why are we so blind on this matter? <laughs> now, if you're a child of God... If you're not, it doesn't apply. But if you are a child of God, if you've truly been born of God's Spirit, you've got to wake up to the fact that you are marked, signed, with the name of the Lord Jesus. You have the mark of the Messiah upon you may not see it, but all the spiritual forces around us, they immediately see one clear mark in you. And that mark is the mark of the Lord Jesus. The mark of the Lamb, not the mark of the beast. The mark of the Lamb. And when they see that mark, you are a marked person. As far as they are concerned, you are a target. You have got to be waylaid. You have got to be diverted. You've got to be deceived. Somehow or other, you've got to be disillusioned. You've got to be brought to a place where you're, you're sort of at a point where you're out of favor with your brothers and sisters, you're disillusioned, you're disappointed, or whatever else he can do, but he's got to get you. You've got to be a casualty. He cannot afford to leave you in the army of the Lord, growing in your knowledge of the Lord and your experience of the Lord, with all the awful possibilities as far as he's concerned, that you might put on the whole armor of God, and that you might start using some of the weapons of our warfare. So you're a marked person. From the moment you were born of God, though you hardly realized it, you were a marked person. Now do you think the Lord does not know this? You think the Lord sort of saved you and then tipped you out into a hostile environment and said, you're saved now, that's all that matters, you're gone. You think the the Lord doesn't know this battle that you're in? You think that he came into this world and laid down his life at Calvary for you and for me and had no idea that once having snatched us out of the jaws of the enemy the enemy would not in fury pursue us? Oh my dear friends it's a wonderful thing when you see a psalm like this 27th psalm it's marvellous Here you have it, for in the day of trouble he will keep me secretly in his pavilion in the covert of his tabernacle will he hide me. He will lift me up upon a rock and now shall my head be lifted up above mine enemies about me and I will offer in his tabernacle sacrifices of joy. I will sing, yea, I will sing. Praise unto the Lord. Here is something quite amazing. Here, with these cannibals after us, these spiritual cannibals wanting to make us a meal, the this army encamped against us with its strategies and devices. This war declared against us. The psalmist David says, "I'm the Lord's going to hide me in the day of trouble. I'm absolutely safe in 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 his um, uh, in his." Uh, booth, the word in Hebrew sukkah, in his booth, he's going to absolutely, it is amazing, he's going to keep me and now he says, he will lift me up he will put me on a rock, my head shall be lifted up above mine enemies and I'm going to worship the Lord with joy shouts in the midst of all this war and in the midst of all this antagonism and in the midst of all the enemy's strategies and devices I'm going to worship the Lord So much for heaviness. (laughs) No, I mean it. The people who are really heavy are the people who don't know they're in a war. Because once you know you're in a war, now listen to me, because some people are bound to say, oh dear, you frightened me to death with all this talk. People who know they're in a war know they are not going to come through unless they keep their eyes on the commander. But if you keep your eyes on the Lord Jesus, if you behold the beauty of the Lord in his temple, and inquire, don't do your own thing, don't do your own will, really inquire of the Lord, you will not only know the Lord's way for yourself, you will not only know know the Lord's way for us as a fellowship of God's people, but we can inquire of the Lord as to the meaning of world events, we can get understanding in the house of the Lord that gives us an interpretation and an explanation of what is happening so that we know how to war the warfare of the service how we can really um, be involved uh, 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 by the Spirit of God in the fulfillment of God's purposes both locally and even on a wider scale I say that this is wonderful begin to see this, it, uh, it transforms everything. I mean, uh, why should we be heavy? The heavy people are the people who don't understand this war that they're in. Then they can't understand why this is happening and why that is happening, why these circumstances are so difficult, why this inexplicable thing comes into their life. They don't understand it. Then they become heavy because the enemy says, see, where is your Lord now? will not you promise a bed of roses? It seems you've got thorns. Weren't you promised beds of ease? It seems you've got a nail bed. A bed of nails. Dear, dear, dear. There must be something terribly wrong with you. And of course, most of us have great recipients of enemy propaganda. We say, oh, yes. There's something terribly wrong with me. I think it was grandmother or grandfather. There must be something I've inherited from them. Truly it must be. Or it may be I'm a very unique personality. The Lord didn't realize when he saved me what kind of person he'd saved. And now the Lord is holding his head and saying, I wish I hadn't saved so and so. They are so difficult. You laugh because you know how stupid it all is. This would be to make God an idol a creature of our own making, who can only think our thoughts and do what we will let him do. But if God is God, when he saved you, he knew all about you. So you're not too big a problem for the Lord. It says in the word of God, nothing is too hard for the Lord, not even you. Nothing is too difficult for the Lord, not even you so now we begin the heaviness begins to disappear because we suddenly realise we're in a battle now if we're in a battle then we need to begin to discover why are we in this battle what is the goal of the Lord in this battle and what is the provision he's made for us in the battle do you understand? then we begin to understand that maybe we shall become good soldiers of the Lord Jesus this battle you will find wherever you turn you take God's ancient covenant people all the way through the Old Testament from Abraham all the way through to the coming of the Lord Jesus you find them in the midst of battle think of all those wonderful stories that are used again and again and again as illustrations for us it was all battle It doesn't matter whether it's Moses in Egypt and them coming out of Egypt. It doesn't matter whether it's facing the Amalekites or he's lifting up his hands and having Aaron on one side and Hur on the other side. What was it all about? A battle. It doesn't matter whether it's Joshua going out of Jericho and going round the walls of the city once a day for six days and seven times on the seventh. It's a battle. It doesn't matter when they're defeated at Ai. It's a battle. All the way through, we can see his battle. We think of Jehoshaphat and we see him putting the choir in front of the army, a thing I've often wanted to do. Um, putting uh, our choir in front of the army, sending them out in, uh, into battle because the word has come the battle is the law doesn't send them out with a war song, uh, as I, I would have imagined. Well, he would say, now listen everybody, I want you choirs to go out in front and I want you to sing this great song. The Lord is the Lord of hosts, a great warrior. His is the victory. No, he gives them a Sunday school refrain. He says, now you choirs, you go out and you sing the lo- the... The mercy of the Lord endures forever. And you reply to them, this choir, The mercy of the Lord endures forever. And there they go out, with all these hostile, fully armed, fully mobilized armies, singing a little Sunday school ditty about the mercy of the Lord, as if there's no enemy. And in fact, the enemy have destroyed each other. You remember? Now this is only one story I could go on keeping you here all the evening, we could take one story after another story, after another story, after another story, all the way through, and what do we find? Everywhere it's battle, everywhere it's conflict. We find suddenly that this covenant people of God, because they are the vessel of God's salvation, because they're going to be the means of the Messiah coming into the world, because they have been, to them has been committed the oracles of the living God, because to them God has committed covenants, to them the word of God has been transmitted to be communicated to the nations the whole of hell is up in arms against this people to destroy them, to wipe them out and then you understand that it is the God of all grace who keeps this failing obstinate sinning people on course it is the God of all grace, the God of Jacob who keeps them on course. If it is only a remnant, he takes them, and by that remnant he fulfills his own purpose. It is amazing. It is the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. It doesn't matter where you turn, therefore you will find this battle. Uh, When you come to the Lord Jesus, do I have to talk about battle uh, concerning the Lord Jesus? When he was born, all the children under two years of age in the whole of the Bethlehem region were murdered. Isn't that battle? Take the life of the Lord Jesus from the moment he starts his messianic ministry. It's as if all hell comes out against him misinterpretation, misunderstanding, misrepresentation, gainsaying of sinners, contradiction, everywhere on every side, even his own disciples don't understand him and become a burden. It's battle and battle and battle. We come to Gethsemane and we see the Lord Jesus facing an enormous battle, so terrible that he sweats great drops as of blood. I do not believe that Jesus was afraid of physical death at all. I don't think it had anything to do with it. I think it was the fact that he who knew no sin was going to become sin for us. This for him was the unknown. He who knew no death was going to taste Every man. He who had always been the victor over Satan and over the forces of darkness was going to surrender his life into the grip of the powers of darkness. He called it the hour of darkness. That is the thing he fought in the garden of Gethsemane and won when he said, nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Then he went to Calvary with his face set towards it it won the battle. Now dear folks we could go on and on what about the early church? Have you ever seen such a battle as over the early church? My word, look at this early church. No theological seminaries, no Bible schools, no great organization, no fundraising schemes, no great missionary organizations they started with 120 people, the majority of whom we don't even know by name, they were so insignificant and they turned the known world upside down and suddenly into the midst of the kingdom of this world came an alien force so dynamic, so powerful that all of hell was mobilized to destroy them. And the more the powers of darkness sought to touch them, so the more God caused the believers to multiply and the word of the Lord to increase is a battle (laughs) and we don't have to go any further We don't have to confine ourselves to the New Testament as such. We can look at church history. And hasn't there been a battle? Look at church history. See the whole range of this last 2,000 years. See the way that this battle has raged backwards and forwards over every single move of the Holy Spirit from the day of Pentecost. There have been many, if you know what I mean, many expressions of Pentecost. Every move of the Holy Spirit has been as it were, like another Pentecost. It's been a pouring out of the Spirit with the same unbelievable results. Men and women, saved by the grace of God, joined to the Lord Jesus as head. And suddenly a community, a fellowship developing. The Word of God, absolutely authoritative and powerful. And suddenly you find the whole world is up in arms. And then we find that every single move of the Spirit crystallizes, institutionalizes, traditionalizes, and dies. And then the Lord starts all over again. Huh. It's Not that he completely forsakes any one of those moves. I mean, still you will find those who know the Lord and love the Lord in every one of these traditional uh, organizations. But you find that the Lord moves on and he does it again in the next generation and then in the next generation and then in the next generation. And We see an amazing apostolic succession that runs right the way down through the last 2,000 years. It is a spiritual apostolic succession. It is not physical. It is a spiritual thing. And we find that every time the Holy Spirit works, you find the same features reasserting themselves. Now, I've, I must um, curb myself and uh, discipline myself in this matter, or we won't get. But I want to get you to understand this evening one simple thing we're in a battle. And this battle isn't something new as if suddenly somehow the enemy who's been asleep for 2,000 years has woken up in 1990 and said, oh, I must do something about that fellowship in Richmond. <laughs> I mean, we're a small fly. He's been at this thing the whole time. Let me put it another way. By the grace of God, whether we knew it or not, we have stepped into a battle that has its origins from the foundation of the world and has its end in the coming of the Messiah. We've stepped into it and the more clearly we've seen what the the purpose of God is concerning the Lord Jesus so in a sense, the more defined is the battle into which we have stepped. Uh, I read that passage in Ephesians chapter 6. you want to uh, you want me to take this off: I mean about Uh, battle. Well, at least we haven't had a dramatic storm tonight. (laughs) Or water coming in through the roof. (laughs) Or an earthquake. (laughs) Uh, You see, I read that passage in Ephesians chapter 6 because I want you to see the way the Apostle Paul concludes this amazing revelation that the Lord has given him. It is generally agreed by most uh, Bible teachers and expositors that the letter to the Ephesians is the high watermark of revelation in the Bible concerning God's eternal purpose. And I think it is very interesting that when he comes to conclude, he says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. You might have thought he would have said, now then, see that you fulfill the commission to go and make disciples of all nations. This would have been right, but he didn't say that. Or he might have said, I think that you must Give yourselves to deeper things. Don't just be kindergarten saints. Give yourself to the deeper things. But he would have been good, but he didn't. Or he might have said, Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. And the only way that you can be is to know the work of the cross and the power of the Holy Spirit. There is no other way. So make sure that you are baptized in the Holy Spirit and that you know the work of the cross this would have been absolutely right but he didn't there are many other things he could have said which would have been right but this is the way he ends he tells us whether we know it or not if once we are in that purpose of God If once we have begun to understand that it's not me alone or you alone, but us together in Christ, then all hell is going to come out against us. And if you and I do not know how to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, If we don't know how to put on the panoply of God, the armor of God, then we will not be able to stand in the evil day. Because Paul is saying there will be days of evil when it seems as if all hell will overrun everything. And if you and I don't know how to stand in the Lord, If we don't understand that we are not dealing with flesh and blood, take our problems here in a fellowship like this. We always descend to flesh and blood. We think, well, it's brother so-and-so that's the problem. Or it's sister so-and-so that let's kick them out. If we could get rid of them, the whole work would would just move in a new way. It's such and such a family. They're so ill-disciplined if only we could hammer them on the head and their children something might happen I think the Lord is grieved with that family and then we think oh there is such and such a brother he is doing this and that and the other I am sure oh shall we have a special prayer meeting and ask Lord hammer brother so and so (laughs) you see we always come down to flesh and blood no I'm not saying I'm not saying that we don't have flesh and blood problems I am not saying that there's not ill-disciplined families. I hope there are not in this fellowship, and I'm saying if it's a normal fellowship, there will be at least one-third of the families that are ill-disciplined. <laughs> I'm not saying that there are not problems uh, uh, in our marriage relationships, because if it's a normal a fellowship, especially, I say it with great sadness, a normal American fellowship, then two-thirds of the marriages are in trouble. And I'm not saying that we don't have flesh and blood problems. We've got people in business that sail near the wind. Or we've got people who, for one reason or another, are legalists always hammering this brother or that sister with a heavy word about how they look or how they should look. (laughs) Do you know what the kind of thing I'm talking about? These are flesh and blood problems. But my dear friends, our real problems are with principalities and powers and world rulers of this darkness and hosts of wicked spirits in the heavenly places. They are playing on these flesh and blood problems. If we could only stop at the flesh and blood, it would be simple. But we can't, but most of us, we do. We say, this is the problem, why don't we kick so and so, maybe something will happen to them. We think that if we can go to someone and give them a heavy word and hammer them into the ground about the way they look or the way they dress or the way they speak or the way they behave, that it will help. They will do it, but it doesn't. Very often they resist even more. And then we've got a real problem because we've got someone in our midst who resents so-and-so for having ever spoken to them. Do you understand what I'm talking about? We stop at flesh and blood. We we will always use flesh and blood means and flesh and blood weapons to try and get spiritual things done, my dear friends. If we want spiritual results, we have to use spiritual weapons and we have to understand that it is by spiritual character in the end that things are done we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against, princip- against the principalities, against the powers, against the world rulers of this darkness, against hosts of wicked spirits in the heavenly places. How interesting that this apostle, this apostle who knew so much about battle, so much about conflict, this apostle of such revelation and of such worship, This dear apostle, the greatest rabbi of them all, this apostle, he ends by saying, put on the whole armor of God, praying at all seasons in the spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance, in prayer and supplication for all the saints and on my behalf also. Well, dear friends, I find that very interesting because it's almost as if the Holy Spirit is saying to us, if you don't understand something about spiritual warfare, if there are not those amongst you who can together enter in to that area of true spiritual Warfare, and see the purpose of God fulfilled, it will fall apart. It is a fact of church history that not a single thing that God has done has remained more in spiritual power and character for more than two generations. It just institutionalizes, traditionalizes and dies and the Holy Spirit then has to start all over again and we have yet another great move of the Spirit. And It's interesting, isn't it? Why should we think that we will be any different? I am now old enough to have seen works of the Lord grow in power, come to a climax, mean something to God and then die. Fall apart. We must never think that there's something special about us, that we, will be, we are immunized against such a thing. The more we have seen of the Lord, the more we have understood the purpose of God, the more we have an understanding of the times in which we live, the greater our responsibility is. We have got to guard that. Thank you. We have to guard that. It's something we're going to have to guard spiritually together. So I I hope that you're beginning to understand a little bit of what I mean. Here is the Apostle Paul. He's writing to his son in the faith. He has seen this Timothy come to the Lord. He is a rather soft fellow in some ways. Gentle And uh, not aggressive, uh, at least reading between the lines. And the Apostle knows very well that once he's gone. And he says in his second letter, I'm ready to go. I'm being offered up on the altar of your faith. He knows his time has come. And now, everything that God has entrusted to him, he's entrusting to this Timothy. Timothy. And he says to him, fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on that, the life eternal whereunto you've been called. If you don't learn to fight this good fight of faith, and lay hold, arrest, apprehend this life that is yours in Christ, you will end up a shell. A facade, in a routine, doing a duty. And then in his very last letter, he says to Timothy, Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Jesus the Messiah. Now, my dear friends, I believe that this is a message that you and I need to hear because we are living in amazing days. I I have basically covered what I want to say, but before we go, I would like just for tonight, tomorrow night I will talk about actual spiritual warfare, what is the goal of it, and uh, what are the weapons that we must use. But I would like finally this evening to say we are in a most amazing time. I don't know whether you feel it, but it's a very great privilege to live in these particular days. There are patriarchs and prophets and kings and apostles who have longed to live in these days and to see what we are seeing to witness the fulfillment of age-long prophecies, 2,000 years old, 3,000 years old, actually being fulfilled in our day and generation. All these died in faith, not actually seeing the fulfillment of these things, but knowing that in the end God would fulfill them, but to us has been given the privilege of actually seeing these things with our own eyes. Now Daniel spoke very much about these days. 2,500 years ago, 600 years ago, God gave to that great statesman That great intercessor. You know, in Jewish tradition, he is not called a prophet. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? For most Christians, Daniel is the prophet. I mean, of all the others, he is definitely a prophet. But according to Jewish tradition, Daniel is supremely an intercessor. That was his calling. Of course, he was a prophet because... Most intercessors have to have prophetic insight. This Daniel saw the whole course of world history, from Nebuchadnezzar right the way down to four successive empires, the Babylonian, the Medo-Persian, the Hellenistic or the Greek, and finally the Roman, until our own day, a mixture of iron and clay. He saw it under two uh, symbols, one as a great image, a human image, magnificent, monolithic. But this image could not breathe, it had no heart. This is how Nebuchadnezzar saw it, he saw it as a human being. But, in fact, God was saying something to Nebuchadnezzar. He was saying, all of fallen world history is the product of fallen man. And everything he does is a form of self-worship. He is producing a great monolithic idol that he bows down before and worships. But it has no heart. And that is world history. The beauty of architecture built on slave labour. We go to see the pyramids, we go to see the great magnificent columns in Greece and other parts of the Mediterranean and the Middle East and we marvel at the beauty of the architecture but we forget that it was at the cost of the blood and broken hearts of millions of people. We talk of the great Babylonian empire with its philosophy and what it's given to us, an understanding of astronomy and mathematics and so much else, but we have no idea of the cruelty of the Babylonian system. It's forced deportation of whole tribes and nations from one end of its empire to the other and then deporting that nation there in order to make them rootless. And thus, easy to govern. I could talk about the Greek and Hellenistic, so magnificent in its philosophy, and so immoral in its practice. Or I could talk about the great Roman Empire with all its magnificent roads, and its magnificent system of law, and its cruelty. It is an image. It has no heart. It is not human. And then Daniel saw this whole thing of world history again under another picture. And this time he saw it under the image of four wild beasts. These are not domestic creatures, not an ox or a cow or a pet dog or a pet cat. Something that you know uh, is pleasant. I mean, these creatures have got very pleasant uh, and attractive attributes as well, but they're unpredictable. A lion, a bear, a leopard, and an exceedingly strong and diverse beast. These are wild animals. Now you know, a a lion looks so cuddly at times, especially when it's young. But it is totally unpredictable, especially when it's hungry. (laughs) A bear seems to be so sweet and pleasant. But my dear friend, a bear is an unpredictable creature. So is a leopard, so agile, so elegant. What was God saying to Daniel? He was saying, Daniel... Don't be fooled by what I showed to Nebuchadnezzar in his dream. This is the real character of world history. It is a savage beast at heart. And my dear friends, we've lived to see it. We would have thought with all the education and the scientific and medical uh, progress of the 20th century that we would have left behind us the wickedness of Kampuchea. One and a half million people murdered in cold blood. We would have thought that the... Germans, one of the most educated and sophisticated of all the European nations which have given to us such magnificent music and and literature. And they're capable of gas chambers and incinerators in which about 15 to 18 million people died. Six million Jews two million gypsies and many others. My dear friends, the Japanese are such a clever people, so sophisticated, so artistic and capable of unbelievable, monstrous savagery, bestiality. This his world history, and then we see one like unto a son of man. This son of man moves, he speaks, he has a heart, he is quite different. He's not an image, he's not a wild beast, he is the Lord Jesus, the new man. And certainly we understand the whole of world history in terms of self-worship, self-glorification, self-expression, and savagery, and humanity. This is what the battle is over because it is not just that jesus is the new man in himself but he is the new man is head and body do you understand it is the lord jesus And the church, those he's truly brought to himself, has given his own life, his own nature. Here is the new man. And we find it everywhere in the letters in the New Testament. Now you you begin to understand when we come to the book of Revelation, we find it's all battle from beginning to end. One huge conflict and battle. And then we find the Lamb. Isn't that beautiful? The Lamb and the followers of the Lamb. Those who overcome, those who are with him, chosen, called, and faithful. Now we begin to understand something that's at the heart of this whole thing. This is what the battle is about. This is what why war has been declared upon us. Do you understand that? something dawn on you? And then here we are in our little fellowship with all our humdrum routine problems and our incompatibilities and our collisions and our misrepresentations and misinterpretations, the gossip and the rumour, and I don't know what else, our not well-attended prayer meetings, and I heard oh, the thousand and one problems that go with a little fellowship such as ours. And we think, are we really in this? Are we real? Yes, my dear friend, we are. Because it is just here in a small fellowship of God's people that the Holy Spirit begins to work all this into experience. He begins to make us new people he begins to give us a new character he begins to produce and manifest a new nature that's why the Lord allows the incompatibilities and the collisions and the things that are inexplicable so that by the grace of God we overcome these things and prove that it's not self-worship and self-glorification that we're after nor is it just animal nature but something that God has wanted from the beginning of time and found in the Lord Jesus. And now the Lord Jesus wants to bring many sons unto glory with himself. Now, dear friends, that's where we are. And we are in the midst of the most exciting period because all of a sudden, all around us, things are happening so fast with such suddenness, such unexpected suddenness and rapidity that we can hardly, we just don't know what to say. Most of us would never have believed a year ago that the Kremlin would be so shaken to its foundations that it would start talking about democratic elections and start to talk about, I don't know what... We would never have thought that the Soviet Union would allow Eastern Europe to go free so that tonight there can be open airs in any of the cities of Eastern Europe so that for the first time Bibles and Christian books are being published in Poland, in Czechoslovakia, in Hungary, in East Germany. It is an unbelievable thing that has happened and it has all happened in a few months. I wish that I had known about it when I was here last year because I would have undoubtedly told you. And then, as I've said before, I would come back and I wouldn't have to say, do you remember what I said last year? Because you would all be coming up to me and saying, oh, what, wasn't that remarkable. You said so and so and so and so. And it's come to pass. But I didn't think that it would happen quite so suddenly. I had myself believed for a long time that Russia was going to be free. I remember, you see, this is where I'm talking about spiritual warfare. You see, there are people who somehow or other get so narrow like Jonah. They get so narrowed in their vision and so straightened in their vision. They can't see beyond the confines of God's people. And therefore, they cannot pray for the nations. Why do you think the Apostle Paul said in Timothy... We'll come to it uh, tomorrow, look at it a little more carefully along with the other things. But why do you think he said, I therefore exhort that men everywhere lift up their hands and make prayer for all men, for kings and for those in authority. Do you know these kings were godless, pagan kings, some of them savage and cruel? Do you know that these people in authority were anything but believers? Paul says, I exhort therefore first of all that you pray. I remember very well some years ago in a prayer meeting at Halford House. We were having a, a week of prayer. Our beloved brother Dennis Clark was with us at the time. And that dear brother had a great gift of insight into the things of God, particularly in the matter of intercession. And I remember on that day of prayer where we had three big sessions. The first session, we brothers talked just before it, and he said to us, do you think that we could pray for Rafa?" What shall we pray for, I said. Well, don't you think he said we could pray that um, that the Lord will do something in Russia? We'll pray for the prisoners. We'll pray for the underground church. We'll pray for the compromised church. Yes, we all said, let's do it. So we began. We had the most amazing time in the morning and another amazing time later. But I shall never forget the evening time. Because during that The evening time to at the beginning, and they were it was real prayer and real warfare. Dennis came across to me and said, Brother, do you think he whispered, do you think that we could pray that Russia will be free? And I looked at him and I said, Free? (laughs) Yes, he said, Free. Well, I said, why not? I always remember what C.T. Stunt said, why ask the Lord for an egg if you can ask him for an elephant? So I thought, why not? So we said to everyone, have we got faith to pray that Russia will be free? Do you know that prayer meeting that went on for a couple of hours was one of the most amazing prayer meetings I have ever been in? Suddenly the Spirit of God took those 300 people out of themselves into another dimension. I suppose nobody had ever really prayed for Russia to be free. Most people had always accepted that the Kremlin would be there forever and that this monolithic Marxist system would be there because it was the Antichrist. But as we prayed that God would break its power and began to declare over it, there's a time limit, Lord, just like Nebuchadnezzar. There's a time limit to this thing. You'll bring it to an end in its time. An amazing release of worship and praise came into that whole company until in the end it was as if we were gazing into the heavens itself. I remember it very well. We ended with a half hour of worship and praise I shall never forget. And I remember saying to everybody, uh, in prayer, I said, uh, more surely than I stand here, we shall see Russia free. I felt as if I was standing in a freed Russia. I don't know if you've ever had such an experience in prayer, when God so answers as it were that you suddenly feel as if you're there, actually there in the situation. I could see it. It wasn't just me. It wasn't just uh, that everybody felt it. None of us that were in that prayer meeting have ever forgotten it. From that day on, I have always been convinced, God has a limit to international Marxism. I'm glad I've lived to see its death. We are actually witnessing the death of international Marxism. Now, this doesn't mean that that's the end that we're going to enter. Of course, it may be that peace is going to break out in the world. But um, the fact of the matter is that we are actually nearer to a world government than we have ever been in the history of the world. So, in fact, we have almost like a breathing space before another fulfillment. Will it happen as suddenly, as rapidly, as unexpectedly as this other? I could give you many other such examples. Johannes Fesius was here, I believe, earlier in the year. I I remember how Johannes went with three other brothers all over the Soviet Union two or three times and prayed in the four corners of the Soviet empire declaring that God would break the power of the Kremlin over that land and release it and that the gospel would be preached from end to end and out of it would go forth people to take the gospel to other nations people thought they were crazy I remember some brethren saying to me he's gone off the rails dear brother be careful he's gone right off the rails he should be keeping himself to the house of God not wandering around Soviet Russia praying crazy prayers what do they think they're doing i remember these four brothers i must say that I should well, um, maybe one or two of them are a little crazy at times but still i mean the thing is that basically maybe the lord has to have some crazy people to do this kind of thing i don't know your highness is definitely not crazy i've known him for all of 30 more years And I can tell you this, Johannes has a great love for our people. He went everywhere in the Soviet Union, where not a Jew wanted to come out except a tiny handful of dedicated Zionists. None of them wanted to come. But they went everywhere in Kiev, in Babi Yar, in Moscow, in Leningrad. All over they went, everywhere standing where they knew there were Jewish communities, Soviet Jews, and saying, Lord, these people are going to go home. And we open the gates in the name of the Lord. No wonder Satan came in like a flood and swept Johannes into an illness that nearly killed him. And then people came to me and said, there you are, there you are, he's uncovered himself. I told you he should have kept himself to the house of God, but he hasn't. He's let go of what God gave him, and now he's uncovered himself. I thought many times, because I had had a very close relationship with Johannes, I thought to myself, is it true? Is it?" You know, you, you often wonder when people say these things, and a number of people said i got letters from different ones. And then I thought, but then the Lord said to me, no, it is not true. He is my faithful servant. He will come through this with something the others haven't got. And he came to it. The Lord stood in that room with him, and in three minutes healed him well he still has the fibrillation in the heart but I mean he was a different man if you'd seen him before and afterwards you'd know what I mean the light had gone out of him for two whole years the light just went out of him and then God put him and my dear friends we've lived to see the most amazing aliyah in Jewish history I mean already 350,000 uh, 43,000 came from the Yemen. Now, I, I, I mean, don't think about the politics, just think about the amazing thing. 43,000 came in one year in 47 48 from Yemen. 115,000 came in two and a half years from 1950 to 52 from Iraq. Now they're coming in 1,000 a night. It is the most amazing thing I have ever seen to see old people with sticks and people on stretchers and old ladies bent right over and, and pregnant young mothers and fathers with five or six little children all holding hands coming through. A sea of Russians, a 1,000 a night. 2,000 world top world medical specialists, by the end of this year, 1,000 top scientists and enough qualified musicians when I left in June to create 31 orchestras. Where do we put them? What are we going to do? Isn't this amazing? Well, of course, it may not mean a lot to you, but for those of us, of course, who are Jewish, it is unbelievable. Because it's in our bloodstream we have wandered from pillar to post for 2,000 years. We've heard some people say, they'll come back in the end. They'll come back in the end. But the problems are enormous. We have an intifada. We have many huge problems. We have a deteriorating economy. And we have around us neighbors who are telling us they're going to gas us and incinerate us. If you had asked me, will these people come back, I would have said, well, they will in the end, but not now. And you say, well, why not now? And I would say, well, God can do anything, but I don't think anybody in their right senses will come back to Israel just at present. (laughs) And suddenly, they all come back. I mean, how do you explain that? I tell you, I have been in prayer meetings where people have battled in my own home, I have seen the prayers in our own home for these self-same Soviet Jews. I have heard it said in my own home, in the name of the Lord, that you Kremlin shall give these people up. When the Lord says, give up, you shall give up. And when the Lord says to the South, Ethiopia, keep not back, they will come home. And you know the amazing thing is, it's not just the Soviet Union... 10,000 of the 12,000 remaining Ethiopian Jews have applied for visas and are on their way back. And another 10,000 of the 17,000 remaining Romanian Jews have applied for visas and are coming home. Isn't this amazing? At the worst time in our history, at the most, what is God saying? I mean, what I'm trying just to get over to you is this. We are living in the most amazing days. Surely the Lord's coming must be on, you know, near. I mean, I'm not saying necessarily tonight, but it just seems to me that the Lord's coming is near, and therefore we need to wake up. Do you think that the enemy is going to allow this work of the Lord here, this company of believers, this building up of the house of God to continue unchallenged? No, my dear friends. The enemy is going to undermine this work. He's going to divide it. He's going to smash it to smithereens unless we learn how to guard what God has given us. Unless we learn how to win as it were. Now you may say to me, but surely the Lord is able to do this without us. Of course he is, but what do we learn? Did you get that? Supposing he does it all for us, what do we learn? It is the very principle of allowing Adam and Eve to fall. That the Lord uh, says, now you have got to learn how to guard this deposit, how to keep it pure, how to stop the leaven from getting into the flour, how, as it were, to go on with the Lord, how to come through together in spite of all our problems. I think that's enough for one evening. I could say so much about the present situation in the Soviet Union and so much about Eastern Europe and so much about the Middle East situation but suffice it I believe in the power of prayer and I believe that God's one of the supreme ministries of the house of God is to be a house of prayer for all the nations. This is where we've failed. We've sometimes thought of the house of God as something in itself. Just get church truth and that's all that's required. And once you've got church truth, fight for it. As if church truth in itself is something that is the focal point of the battle. Now, my dear friends, it's important for us to have church truth, but the really important thing is for us to function as the church. I go all over the place to little groups that have church truth, and I find them, forgive it, but I find many half-baked, half-dead, interned, lifeless, legalistic, and utterly superior. They look down upon everybody else. And the funny thing is that I am often asked to go and speak in other places. Now, my priority is always those who've seen something of the house of God. But I will go to other places, and sometimes I find in an Episcopalian more church features than in the other group that I'm with. What am I to do? I find more fellowship, more love, more unity, more functioning as the body of Christ. Then what are we to do? I I wish I could be as honest enough to be able to give you examples, but again, um, I mean, not just I would keep out of the American continent, but I can't even talk about other parts of the world because many of you know them. But I I have been in places where, in one, uh, one place I know, where God did a wonderful work 40 years ago, more than 40 years ago. Wonderful work. It was the living place in that whole city. And then they got affluent and their whole society became affluent and they sat on their haunches and then came this great work of the Spirit in 1960 and of course flowed right round them and they hardly knew what was happening because they were now so interned and exclusive that they never touched anything else. But all over this city people were being saved. And Christians were being renewed. And suddenly they began to talk about the house of God and the body of Christ and body ministry and body life and all kinds of things. Now some of it was extreme and excessive. But it was unbelievable what happened. I was so moved. I was asked to go to speak in the great cathedral in that city. And with great trepidation I went into the cathedral to find that it was the only cathedral I've ever been in that was like a house church. Guitars playing up. And a whole atmosphere that was so unbelievable to me. I nearly died on the spot. I thought, what am I doing here? Then I found they were baptizing by immersion in this Episcopalian. I thought, I can't believe it. (laughs) Then I went to one of the others and I found they'd taken away all the altar and everything else. And here they were. I mean, we wouldn't touch them with a barge pole. And then one day, these dear brothers, the elders of this precious, precious company, they said, we'd like to come with you to one of these meetings. And I was in great fear. I thought, oh dear. But they were so moved by what they saw of worship and testimony. They had an hour of worship, real worship. Hour of testimony. All these young people just going up spontaneously, giving testimonies, how the, various ones in the family had come to the Lord, how what had happened to them, how they were finding the Lord. It was all so wonderful. And I thought, well, now they've exhausted their time. Two hours. By the way, all the sides of this church building have been torn down. And they were all sitting out in the open in the dark. A thousand of them. And then they said, now you must speak for not least than one hour. And not a soul moved. Now, my dear friends, I'm not saying that that can always be the hustle of a what. I'm just saying is this: does that not put us to shame? Here we are with church truth. And sometimes we don't have the freedom that our brothers or sisters elsewhere seem to have in things that are traditional or institutional. Here we believe in the unity and we are often divided and they are moving together in the unity. Here we talk about the gifts, but somehow or other there are no gifts. Here we talk about really uh, uh, praying together, but we never do. Now, dear child of God don't use what I've said as ammunition because that's not why I've shared it I've shared it because I believe that this particular company of God's children is exceedingly precious in the eyes of the Lord small as it is with all its failings and weaknesses it is exceedingly precious Do you and I think that it's going to go on unchallenged? May God meet us in our hearts. And may he renew us in our love for him. And may he in some way enable us to rise to the challenge or the call of this hour. Let's pray. Lord, we pray together that you will guard us from any misunderstanding of what has been said this evening or any misinterpretation. Lord, we need together to guard what you've committed to us. You have committed to us something so precious, Lord, as particular in this part of your family. You have committed such a precious ministry, such precious servants of yours. You have committed such revelation and understanding. And Lord, our prayer is that we might rise to the responsibility. Lord, you have made this particular part of your family very responsible Deeply and heavily responsible by what you have committed to them. Lord, will you wake us all up? Those of us who are passengers, those of us who are spectators, wake us up, Lord. We are living in days when anything could happen. Lord, we don't know how long we have. Dear Lord, challenge us. By your spirit, challenge us. And will you grant, Lord, that they may come into our hearts a new love for yourself and a renewing of our ministry to you. And then, Lord, a new love for one another and a new understanding of one another and a new recognition of the Lord Jesus in one another. Lord, only you can do it. And then, Lord, in this, Matter of spiritual warfare. Lord, help us to rise to this challenge. We commit ourselves now to you, Lord. Oh, dear Spirit of God, watch over your word to perform it in us all. We ask it in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.